Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty. Now, obviously, every episode of the podcast is a cracker, uh, but today's is particularly uh, good. We've got an interview with the legendary documentary maker Michael Cockrell. He's got a new book out called Unmasking Our Leaders, Confessions of a Political Documentary Maker. We've got the first interview with him and he runs through the last 12 prime ministers who he's interviewed and profiled and discusses who was who flirted with him and who was a bit of a nightmare. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, it's our economist panel. It's Thursday and they're back and reunited. It's night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. Let's talk about Keir Starmer. Let's just dip in, see where we are. So all morning we've been playing Keir Starmer's essay. We've got a robot reading it so you don't have to. Let's just dip in. British people who kept our country going. Many nurses and doctors will tell you, as the nurses who cared for my <laughs> yeah, own mum when uh, she was greatly Let's just dip out of, of, uh, let's dip out of that. That's, that's the, 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 uh, the robot reading Keir Starmer. 13,000 words. 13,000 words. James, you've actually read it. I've read it. But you've read it too. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, I've read it as much as I was possible to, but I, I found it was quite hard to sustain my attention. Did you notice your eyes, you kind of got a sentence and then you just sort of began to fall away again. And I mean, all the cliches just begin to kind of make your eyes glaze over a bit. So I, I tried really hard, uh, but I wouldn't say it's the most gripping, uh, propulsive piece of writing I've ever I've ever encountered. Um, it, it, it feels a bit like, you know, when uh, in the modern digital world, someone does a long read. Uh, for, for the for the internet, and actually, if you were writing for a paper and you had limited space, you would have to just make it fit. You know, it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But thirteen thousand, you can get away with thirteen thousand words online. But if you had to fit this in a one thousand word column, like you and India do every week, uh, it'd be a slightly different, um, a slightly different piece. What's your over? Let's 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 not be completely dismissive of it. Uh, what's your overriding sense of <laughs> what's the message? Uh, in Keir Starmer's uh, essay? Well, I mean, the kind of the principal message to me, because I, th- I feel like an essay is always an expression of personality, and it just seems weird how much he's managed to express all the negative things that people say about his personality. Because, you know, it's such an opportunity, you know, 14,000 words, you know, you're doing a long read, you can sort of, um, it can be about you. But it's just amazing how much uh, Keir Starmer was endlessly accused of being a kind of focus group politician and he's produced this essay that I, th- I think John McDonnell was saying it seems like it was written by a focus group. There's so little to like grab onto it that it seems like it could only have particularly come from him. Um, and that's, for me, that was kind of my, that was kind of my, my overwhelming impression. It was just sort of like, it was so full of cliches that it just seemed to like lose all particularity and relationship to a particular person and just as this sort of 
don't know, it just seemed so kind of general. Yes, it's I mean, and so it's called it's called the road ahead. <laughs> Uh, is what it's called. Although by the end of it, it's not a road anymore. It's a path. Uh, um, uh, the road ahead will be long. The journey will not always be simple. But the choices are clear and the prize at the end, great. Uh, this is the path we have chosen. So we, already the road has been downgraded to a path. Um, uh, people in this country are crying out for change. Everyone has a story to tell and a desire to be heard. Uh, what did you make of it, um, India? I have not <coughs> sat down and attempted to read it. I've just read the coverage of it and I've been listening to your very cruel excerpts read in um, read by... <laughs> I don't think it's cruel. Let's just, let's just see where we are. Let's dip in. Let's dip in. Conditions, working conditions and the environment. And together we would flesh out those things that are less immediately tangible but still vital. Community, well-being, security and opportunity. Community, well-being, security and opportunity. Has that not got you, Grips? Anybody, anybody, he's saying, the things he's saying are completely anodyne and so broadly applicable that they could be really said by anybody from any political party. And what seems to be profoundly lacking with him, as ever, is any sense of kind of dynamism and personality, you know, particularly up against Boris Johnson, who's talking about Kermit the Frog and rudeness yeah. to Piggy, and, you know, who's saying absurd but memorable things. You know, he's just like, he's like one of those very earnest people who tweets and puts at the end of their tweet, first tweet of 350, and he just <laughs> glazes over. You just glaze over. No one wants to read that. No one wants to listen to that. No one wants to sit and bless the Fabian Society. But, you know, nobody wants to go online and wade through 13,000 words that actually don't seem to be very concrete when it comes to policy. It's just kind of waffle. And it's so colourless and grey and droney and I'm sure competently argued and, you know, all of well, those I, Actually, but, I don't think it's... I, I think treating it... Actually, take. let's take this. This is his his... Uh, overriding vision of Britain today and where he wants it to go. I I don't think it is very well argued. It, it, there's a real one of the, the flaws in it for me, James, was that he can't seem to decide whether or not the country is good or not. You know, and I suppose there's always a problem with the opposition. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, he says that the country is terrible and the Tories have driven it into the ground, and yet the pandemic has shown the best of the country and we all come together. It's a big problem as well with about whether or not we're polarised. On page six, I do not believe we are a hopelessly polarised, divided, adrift nation, as some say. By page nine, the forces pushing apart our country and tearing at the social fabric. Nationalism, extremism, misinformation need to be tackled. Page 19, our political rivals sow the seeds of division and rancour liberally and effectively. You think, well, hang on, so are we deeply divided? Which in which it? case you're yeah. going to unite us. Or we're not, in which case, don't. Yeah, I mean, it's that kind of... It, it's amazing. It's this, like... There's a characteristic symptom, symptom of, of the essay is that it's so general. It now... It seems, it, at points, it just seems to embrace all possible points of view. Because it's the same, it's the same with patriotism, because it's all, you know... It's it's just the sort of blandest possible, oh, you know, we hate... We, it goes on about, oh, we hate nationalists, that's no good. Oh, but we're still patriotic. And it's, it's sort of, like, blandly just a, a, sort of managing to incorporate every 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 single point of view i i i, I sort of i looked for i sort of i searched the link on twitter because i wanted to see i wanted to see how many people were kind of ripping it apart on twitter and like nobody was because there's nothing to object to because it's all nobody could possibly disagree with it well that's the problem isn't it and that's always the test with all political statements could you imagine anyone ever saying the opposite 
any but you know any rival politician. So if you know if Keir Starmer had said we should put up a you know create a new fifty percent tax rate for the wealthy, you could imagine opponents saying no, we wouldn't do that. But Keir Starmer says we will always put hardworking families and their priorities first. Yes, Who exactly. literally, yeah, literally nobody has no, the opposite nobody's, nobody's, opinion. Nobody's ever said that. And his ten principles uh, for a contribution society will form the basis of a new contribution. But there is literally nobody who would disagree with any of them. Your yeah, chance... it's a bit like the Edstone, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Your chances in life should not be defined by the circumstances of your birth. Families and communities and the things that bring us together must once again be put above. No, nobody would disagree with it, with with any of that. I mean, and I, yeah, I, I guess think... at least you didn't engrave it on anything. No, that's true. That small mercies. Five ninety-five. If you want to buy it. Also, he refers to that his parents working with their hands, which sounds like they made I don't know artisan pottery. You know, it's really I don't know. I just think nothing he says catches the imagination in any way, either politically or humanly. And it's really I mean, we'll see. We'll see when he makes a speech at conference next week, but. It's beginning to be really, really problematic, I think. OK, but here's a, here's a counter-argument. Tim's been in touch, saying, I think you are missing the point about the pamphlet. Clearly, your Indian knight has the Tory attack lines in front of her while she talks. We'll address that in a moment. <laughs> um, this underpins what is to come in policy terms. But, like, well, what's the... What's, That's it? The, well, because, in fact, there is policy in there. Uh, but it's... Um, uh, hang on a minute. Because where, where there, there is some policy. Because there has been this debate about he doesn't need to set out any policy yet. Uh, and then he does, and everyone says, "Is that it? It might have been better if you hadn't uh, you hadn't done that." So there's a thing about cracking down on street harassment, a new race equality act. So there is there is stuff in there, but it's just not getting the the juices going. But to, to take on that point, India, about you having the Tory attack lines in front of you. Um, no, I do not at all. I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about our own personal politics, but that is uh, very much the opposite end of my <laughs> stick. <laughs> Well, no, I think you're allowed to say that. That's, that's, that's the whole point of you being a columnist, to be able to say that um, those are your... No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not an ardent Tory supporter, let's say, but I, I mean, that's you know, partly why this kind of thing really exercises me, because I think you need a valid opposition. You need somebody people can get behind. I mean, it'll be interesting. I think people... people he's like a sort of beige hotel room. You know, nobody objects to a beige hotel room. But it's not very exciting. Whether that translates into votes, I'm, I'm, I mean, it might. It might. He's a, he seems sort of capable, and he's clearly a really decent person, and he clearly um, thinks deeply about things. And maybe post Boris, that's what people will want. But well, at so, the moment, he just fails to. He, as you say, he fails to get the juices going. I think. And I suppose that's the the question, isn't it, James? Is that part of the appeal early on? Uh, with Keir Starmer was he was the counterpoint to Boris Johnson. So we have Boris Johnson at uh, the UN talking about Kermit the Frog and, you know, uh, telling the French to donne moi un break. And that's all the colourful clown politics that you get from Boris Johnson. So rather than trying to ape that, you have the mirror yeah. opposite. It's the Joe Biden to do- Donald Trump. Yeah, approach. and it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting that, you know, Boris Johnson is a journalist prime minister and this is Keir Starmer trying his hand at journalism and proving that he is the exact opposite of a journalist, which I mean, I suppose trying to be positive about it, it might be this might that we may take this as a positive thing. I was thinking reading this about um, I don't know if you read the uh, the very long Tony Blair essay in the New States a couple of months ago, uh, which was brilliant and which was uh, sort of intellectually exciting and much better written and much less written with cliches. Um, but I think the thought that struck me was 
that's much easier to do if you're, that, if you're on the outside of things, sort of lobbing bombs into it, which is what all essayists want to do. You want to stir things up. You want to get people to disagree with you. You want to cause a bit of a fuss. But if you're, if you're the leader of a political party, I suppose plausibly you are trying to get people to agree with you. Therefore, you kind of want to be the opposite of a journalist. Therefore, what you produce ends up being the opposite of journalism. And I don't know, I suppose that's the kind of, that's my attempt to be sympathetic to the, to the essay, is that perhaps we should be glad that it's not brilliant journalism because that might not be what we want in a politician. Well, before we move on from it, let's just dip, can we just dip back in again and see where we are with the... security uh... and lack of opportunity pockmark the country. People aged 35 to 44 years were almost three and a half times more likely to be renting in 2017 than they were in 1993, as people struggle for longer and longer to get There's an awful lot of this, sort of random stats. Why are we comparing renting levels in 2017 with 1993? Uh, and on it goes, on it goes. So anyway, the robot is reading it so you don't have to. We'll talk about it, uh, we'll talk about it more later, I'm sure. Uh, James, let's, um, we haven't got a robot reading your column, so you're going to have to tell us what it actually says uh, this week. What have you written about this week? Well, yeah, I now kind of want to read my column out in a, in a, in a robotic voice <laughs> to see if any piece of writing can uh, withstand, the, withstand the robot <laughs> voice. And I'll probably find out that it's just as bad as Keir Starmer and uh, nobody comes out well from a robot. Um, so I was writing about something that's kind of, something that's been on my mind for a while, actually. Um, and this, this week seemed the perfect opportunity to write about it, which was uh, this week and next week are the weeks that uh, students uh, head back to university. And I was, I was, in central London uh, last night, walking back home from the cinema, and there were I noticed there were children running around everywhere, and they appeared to be drunk, and realised they weren't in fact children; they were undergraduates, and I'm just very old, and they look <laughs> they look tiny to me. So that was slightly terrifying. Welcome to adulthood, James. Uh, <laughs> it's really not very nice, and I'm sure the policemen will start looking younger soon too, or whatever whatever people slightly older than me say. But anyway, sorry, a uh, distraction. Um, yes, this essay. I always think it's fascinating that. We have this tradition of sending people away from home to university. University expansion over the last 20 years has ballooned, and now we do this to almost half of young people. And it's, to me, it's always seemed like this is kind of vast social experiment that we literally, by, you know, in, we move half the population of people in that age cohort across the country. And why on earth are we doing this? Lots of other countries don't do this. So I, I got very interested in this. So I started reading all these kind of educational reform pamphlets in the mid-20th century, which I will not bore you with. But what I, what I, what I discovered was that... Um, the impetus behind the idea that people should move away from university uh, came out of this kind of uh, education policy panic in, that began in the 1940s, where there was this real fear about the idea of something called a nine-to-five university, which was, everybody thought, this dreadful thing where people would turn to university in the morning, ride their bicycles to university, leave last thing at night, and they would experience university only as a kind of educational experience. Whereas in the middle of the 20th century, everybody was saying a university should be this sort of, this engine of social mobility, a real kind of... Um, really social engineering so that the modern tradition of halls of residence was founded basically as a means of inducting working class kids taking them out of their backgrounds in the working class and providing them with the uh values of um the middle classes and basically what's happened i think now is that uh it's much more embarrassing to admit or much more difficult for universities to admit that this is a kind of social engineering project when you're doing this to uh, basically half of the population, uh, with the result that sort of halls of residence have kind of lost their way and they're kind of pointless. And a lot of the nice things that, about halls of residence in the mid-20th century, they had all these kind of invented traditions and things and there were community places to be. And now I think they're often quite unhappy, sort of slightly miserable places to be. Sorry, there's a very long rant. Uh, I hope that wasn't too long. No, not um, at all. I, I had a lot of... It was more interesting than the robots. It was more <laughs> in... just, just, just quickly, <laughs> what, what do you think about this? Is James right? 
Yes, it's a really interesting argument that I hadn't really thought about. I mean, the the, the notable thing um, to me about halls of residence is that they're exactly like hotels, some of them. It's very strange. Something's happened. There's been an evolution of the hall of residence. And where they used to be quite sort of jolly and chaotic, they're now, um, I have, I have, my two stepdaughters are going through this at the moment. One of them is at a place that is exactly, exactly like a hotel. And I don't know, I think maybe something is lost. Um, but, you know, I think you also need, uh, I mean, I'm in favour of residential universities because you need to get away from home, basically. Otherwise, it's like school. You, know? <laughs> you need to sleep where you are it's rather than sleep in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in your old childhood bedroom. And it's, and it's, being it's, out of the world is, is very much part of it, I think. India Knight and James Barrett there. And of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my interview with Michael Cockle. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Downing Street, brushing the hair out of his eyes. <laughs> Michael, good morning again. Good morning, David. What's going on there? Well, I... For half a century, legendary filmmaker Michael Cockrell has been responsible for some of the most unforgettable eyebrow-raising political documentaries, having profiled the last 12 Prime Ministers and taken the British public behind the scenes in the corridors of power like never before. Now the tables have turned and it's Michael answering the questions at his Notting Hill home. Well, um, most politicians have quite strong ideas about television, but they never watch it because they're always working. They know, and certainly in, in earlier days when I was doing it, uh, it, there was you know no BBC iPlayer or things like that, and, and very few recordings that, that you could get. So most politicians have not seen themselves, certainly in their en- earlier days, on television at all. Yeah. And you, you show them that... And they look at it and they get entranced because suddenly thoughts of what they were like at the age of 25 
the age of 30 and so on, and they see themselves growing older, they see themselves losing hair and all, all that. So, so they're having this debate about, you know, in their head about the, the passing of time. So given your, your, your trick with politicians is to show them themselves when they're younger, <laughs> what's going through your mind when you look at yourself there or there? Promising lad, whatever happened to him. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a, a favourite question which I asked to, to many future Prime Ministers. I put a question which is, do you have any doubts about your ability to fulfil the role of Prime Minister? So what's the answer? Yes, I'm f- fooled with doubts and trembling. Or No, I have no doubts at all. Um, and every Prime Minister from Harold Wilson right the way to Boris Johnson have, have answered that question. Interestingly, Boris admitted to more doubts than anyone else. David Cameron said, if I had doubts, I wouldn't have stood for leadership of the, the Tory party. Ted, Ted Heath, I put it to, do you have any doubts about your ability to fulfil the role of Prime Minister? No. That was it. <laughs> and your career covering Macmillan to Boris Johnson sort of covers the entire period of politicians and their relationship with television. You Winston Churchill, Clement Attlee were completely convinced they were going to have nothing to do with television. And Macmillan is, is almost the first Prime Minister who can't avoid it, even though he doesn't really like it. Yes, I mean, Macmillan said that when he, he first appeared on television, he, he looked like a convict looking through the bars of his prison. And he was, he was hopeless at television, but he suddenly realised that, that he was a medium which, which politicians had always wanted to get through to as many of the uh, voters as they could. And, and here was, you could address a million or more of the voters in one go. Almost every politician I've met, when they're not on television, are nicer and more human. Than, um, than when they are on television. You know, Peter Mandelson once glid up to me at a party, whatever the past of glide is, and said, you do the most important thing it's possible to do for a politician. I said, what's that, Peter? He said, you make them appear human. <laughs> it's a spin doctor's take, and he, he sort of glid away, just as I was going to say, it might be difficult with you, Peter. And when Peter Mandelson talks about making politicians appear human, is he inadvertently admitting that politicians, particularly very successful ones, are a bit weird. Well, in some ways, you have to be mad to go into politics. And a lot of them, when you go back in their lives, have, have been sort of slight misfits or more than slight misfits. So I, I'm not cynical about all politicians, but it's um, quite good to start off by being sceptical about them. I was struck by, for every person you profiled, it was a prime minister. There were so many who didn't quite make it. Enoch Powell, Alan Clark, Willie Whitelaw, Roy Jenkins, Barbara Castle, Alan Johnson. Dennis Healy. Dennis Healy. All fascinating characters. Mm. All made fascinating profiles. What did they lack that the others had? I think luck has a huge connection to it. I mean, look at, say, Dominic Raab. I don't think he would have been moved on if that hadn't happened the ill luck of his Cretan holiday <laughs> coinciding with, with, with the downfall of Kabul. So most of them see it as that. I mean, Jim Callahan's uh, memoirs were, were called Time and Chance. Time and Chance were Wait for No Man. I wondered whether, looking back over all the films you've been doing, is the sort of profile you've made of people over the years, is that a thing of the past now? No, I mean, it is, it is completely different in a way from when I first started because of um, modern media and the, and the way modern politicians and prime ministers use it. And for them, the absolutely key word is control. They've got control of what they're putting up. 
I could see Keir Starmer doing it now as leader of the opposition because, you know... You could do with it. Because you did one, didn't you, with William Hague? I did a, I did a film called How to Be Tory Leader and, yeah. and I filmed a lot with, with William Hague, yeah. But ultimately, that didn't do him much good at the end. No, but there were, <laughs> there were other factors in it. <laughs> and looking, looking into the future then, who would you love to make a film of now? I think Rishi Sunak would be one of the interesting ones to try and do. I fear, though, in this new world where images are so carefully projected that uh, it would be very difficult to get the same amount of access as I've got over the years. Let's have a whistle-stop tour of the, of the Dirty Dozen, as some people might call it, the 12 Prime Ministers that you covered, starting with Howard Macmillan. It was extraordinary to, to me. I, I remember in... 1959, when I went up to Oxford at the Freshmen's Fair, it was the day after the 1959 general election, and there were all these young Tories exulting in the fact that Harold Macmillan had won a majority of over 100, and there was the poor old Labour Party, and they they had their first meeting that was happening that weekend, which was called Labour, Psychologically Happier in Opposition. Then a week later, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan came up and talked to, to the Oxford Union and he did the, his extraordinary thing where he talked about what it was like fighting in the Battle of the Somme in the, the First World War, where of his whole class at Balliol, at the end of the war, of 20 of them, he was the only one who'd survived and they brought tears to my eyes. Little did I know, in 10 years' time, I would be married to his granddaughter so I got to know Mike Millen quite well and talked to him about television and what it was like appearing on television. And he's, he said, for people of my age, it's so difficult because you're used to going and um, making these big speeches and there's an audience and a crowd and they're barracking and that kind of thing. Whereas when you're on television, it's like playing tennis and no ball ever comes back to you. <laughs> Let's move on to Howard Wilson then. And he was someone who completely got the idea of spin and imagery. And people might think this is a new invention, it's a sort of new Labour, David Cameron thing. But his entire sort of folksy image was basically a bit fake, wasn't it? A bit, yeah. Uh, he smoked a pipe on television, uh, but Havana cigars away from the, the camera. I mean, Gerald Kaufman, who was his press secretary and became a, a, a Labour MP, said uh, that he had first met. Harold Wilson in 1948 and he said Harold Wilson after that taught himself a sense of humour he was the most boring speaker I had ever seen and Wilson was very good with the quips and the good good lines Harold Wilson saw himself as Britain's John Fitzgerald Kennedy JFK that there was great loving for, for President Kennedy and Wilson arranged for videos of Kennedy's press conferences, which were, Kennedy was a master of uh, political wit at the press conferences, and Wilson studied uh, these uh, uh, press conferences and was very good himself at behaving a bit like President Kennedy. I have to say, the most extraordinary story for me in the book is about Howard Wilson's thing. If people think infighting in number 10 is bad these days, the plot to get rid of Marcia Williams is one of the most extraordinary stories I've ever read. Although not called a spin doctor, she she knew more about image making than almost anyone I'd ever met, and she she understood exactly how to try and get Wilson properly over on television. When Wilson came back to power in 1974, two of his chief aides 
were rather jealous of Master Williams' hold over Harold Wilson. One day, Wilson's private doctor, Dr. Joe Stone, said, Marcia is a very bad influence on, on Wilson. He, he's not as good as he should be because he, he's so ruled by Marcia Williams. I could get rid of her. I'm her doctor. I could prescribe her some pills and then I can fill, do the death certificate. So here was, here was Wilson's private doctor trying to get uh, Wilson's two other top advisors to, to go along with, it, with a, a plot by the Downing Street doctor, Joe Haynes, the press secretary, said, it was ridiculous. Think of the headlines. <laughs> <laughs> it was the headlines he was worried about rather than yeah. the... Yeah, it's the most extraordinary. It's a reminder that bit of infighting in number 10 is not necessarily a, a, new, a new thing. What about Jim Callaghan then? He replaces Howard Wilson in, in number 10. Jim Callaghan was, was an interesting character as, as Prime Minister. I had a run-in with him very early on, um, in the early 1970s, before he was Prime Minister, I wanted him to come on a programme and he d- decided not to. And he said that he would arrange for his deputy to come on. He was Shadow Foreign Secretary. And I said, well, um, that's very kind of you to arrange that, but I need to be able to choose who I, who I come on, just as it's your right to, to uh, decline to come on. And he suddenly said, Mr Cockrell, I don't think you understand. I know some pretty important people in the BBC. And if you don't have my deputy, then um, your career at BBC won't go very far. I said, Mr Callaghan, you are, you are threatening me. And uh, some years later, when I was making a film about Callaghan, I asked him about his bullying. And, and he said, but I never bully anyone who's not my own equal. I said, hang on, you're prime minister. And I was a, a political reporter, producer. And he said, yes, but... You went to university, didn't you? And he, he never forgot that, that he sort of left school at 16 and never went to university and always thought that there were people who had gone to university, especially to Oxford, who looked down on him. And then, obviously, Callaghan gives way to Ted Heath. And re- reading your book, my sense is, of all the Prime Ministers, he was the one who you found trickiest to deal with. <laughs> Ted Heath was, was probably the most tricky Prime Minister I... I had to deal with. He had this extraordinary way of trying to destabilise you before you even started the interview. I remember he once said to me, have you got the usual list of boring questions? I said, (laughs) I'm afraid so. And at the end of it, I thought the interview had gone uh, rather better than than I'd expected. I said, did you think it was boring as, as you were? Oh, yes, but infinitely more irrelevant today. Yeah, he, he, he does come across as a very tricky tricky character. In contrast to Margaret Thatcher, who my sense is, your interactions with Margaret Thatcher, they, they bordered on flirting at times. <laughs> um, well, Mrs Thatcher was an odd mix. Often when you would go into number 10 uh, to do an interview, she would say, Mr Cockrell, and come to you and hold your tie. What a lovely tie. And it's quite intimidating when you go into, you know, Mrs. Thatcher's lair and her, she's holding your tie. And already she's a great deal less popular than her party in the opinion polls. The opinion polls will dash about, they always do, and you have to have an iron nerve, which of course is appropriate for an iron lady. I remember doing an interview with Mrs. Thatcher during the 1979 election. In, in private polling groups, she'd come over as 
harsh and uncaring. And so this was the new Mrs. Thatcher who was going to be much more gentle and friendly. And we did this interview and I said, I said to, to Mrs. Thatcher, I, I've been following you uh, during this election. There sometimes seem to me to be two Mrs. Thatchers, the one on the platform full of passionate rhetoric and the, the one on the floors uh, in, in the street or in the, in, in the factories that you, that you visit who are endlessly interested in the minutiae of people's lives. How many Mrs. Thatchers are there? And she said, oh, three at least. And she had this new uh, voice that she'd been taught by the voice coach in the National Theatre, so it was, it was a much deeper voice. She said, oh, there are three at least. I said, what are the three? She said, there's the intellectual one, there's the intuitive one, and there's the one at home. And she said it in such a, such a, a flirtatious way that R- Sir Robin Day, who, who was uh, the great interviewer watching it on television, said, the untold story of the election campaign, Margaret Thatcher is having an affair with Michael Cobb. That definitely comes across as some of those interviews. Uh, the, the other thing that, again, history repeats itself, just a <coughs> reminder that when Westminster's in turmoil and they think, oh, this is sort of new and exciting and un- unprecedented is the most overused word in Westminster. What happened during the Falklands War? And you had the Prime Minister telling the BBC to be more patriotic, threatening letters sent to reporters for not getting behind our boys and waving the flag sufficiently. That could be ha- that's, that's what happens right now. Cabinet ministers <laughs> complaining to the BBC for not, for, you know, for not being sufficiently flag-waving, journalists getting abuse from viewers and, and readers. And yet this was what happened in the Falklands all the way back in, in 1982. Yeah, I think in a way war is like love in terms of the way people behave. That you, it's, It paints in primary colours patterns which are often pastel shades in, in peacetime. During the Falklands I made a film which was seen by some people as traitorous and treacherous um, because we talked to a number of conservative MPs who had severe doubts about the whole Falklands campaign. In the House of Commons, uh, a Conservative woman MP called Mrs Sally Oppenheim asked a question, and actually it's um, downstairs in the loo, <laughs> this question verbatim, which is, will the Prime Minister take time off in the course of her busy day to watch a recording of last night's panorama, which was an odious and subversive travesty which dishonoured, in which Michael Cochrane and other BBC reporters dishonoured the right of freedom of speech in this country. But she thought that there were some people who needed to understand that it was their duty to stand up for our boys. It was just an extraordinary moment, having, you haven't covered Margaret Thatcher for such a long time, it was an extraordinary moment when she then fell from grace. I remember Ted Heath, when Margaret Thatcher fell from power and, and Ted Heath had been suffering what he called the longest sulk in history, what he himself called that. And I said to Ted Heath, I heard that when Mrs Thatcher fell from power, you rang your office and said, rejoice, rejoice. And Heath said, oh no, that's completely wrong. I said, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. (laughs) She'd only said it twice in the Falklands. And his shoulders went up with pride and laughter. Margaret Thatcher then gives way to, to John Major, uh, a much less, I mean, literally is spoofed by Spitting Image and so on, a much less colourful character, but actually the Conservative Party around him provided you with plenty of material. John Major did have a good sense of humour in some ways. Um, he, at once, Conservative 
council, he said, I regard it as a scandal that 30% of people leave school at the age of 15 or 16 functionally illiterate. They can neither read nor write properly. What's to become of them? They can't all become prime minister, <laughs> which I thought was a, a nicely self-deprecatory line. It's a great line. John Major then gives up that uh, famous postcode to make way for Tony Blair. But you'd, obviously that would happen in 97, but you first came across him filming him in a 1982 by-election where even uh, Michael Foote at the time tipped Tony Blair for great things. Did you expect great things of Tony Blair when you first came across him in 1982 at a by-election? No, that's interesting. I, I, I first saw Tony Blair at, at the Beaconsfield by-election in 1982, safe Tory seat, and uh, at the height of the Falklands. And there was Tony Blair, aged 29, with a huge grin, lots of teeth, and um, obviously a public school boy. And I thought I wouldn't probably ever see him again and that he would fade from, <laughs> fade from view. It took you six years, but you got access to Tony Blair's Downing Street in part to shine light on the relationship between Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell. One of the best scenes we got when we were filming in Number 10 uh, with Blair and Campbell was when Tony Blair comes into Campbell's room. Just, is this a... Yeah. We're gonna, right. <laughs> um, do you often come to um, your press secretary's office? I do if I'm passing, <laughs> which I happen to be. And when they say it, say in the papers who announced the camera spend your whole time thinking about how you're going to win the next election, everything is planned and worked out to be spun in that sort of way. I mean, it's just rubbish. So why do you think the press don't believe this? Are they corrosively cynical? I honestly don't know, and that's for you to, to do. But what is important for me is that it doesn't disturb me from doing the things that are really important in the end, which are, you know, the things for, for the country. Otherwise, there's no point in doing this job. And you know, people, you know, people can believe that or not as like, but that's that's what I spend my time thinking of. So why you just spent seven minutes talking to Michael Cockle? But if Tony Blair knew how to manage the media and present himself, project through the the camera lens, his successor Gordon Brown really could couldn't do it. No, I mean, it's interesting when Gordon Brown became prime minister. You know, he'd, he'd once had a proper job. He'd, he'd been a TV reporter, <laughs> but it, whatever he learnt as a TV reporter, he'd forgotten by the time uh, he became prime minister. He, he, Gordon Brown was was a sad figure in in a lot of ways in Number Ten because he wanted and plotted and planned to to become prime minister, and when when it happened, he wasn't up to the job. I remember looking at Gordon Brown when he was Prime Minister and I noticed that his fingernails were bitten to the quick and he also, I felt, was filled with, with sort of bile against Tony Blair because uh, he thought that he'd been deprived of the job for so long that he'd been waiting for them. And I felt he was almost being eaten up from inside with his bile against Tony Blair and I eating himself up from the outside. Then along comes David Cameron, the, the exact opposite, a man who, you know, he'd worked in TV, he, he knew the power of, uh, of television. It struck me while I was making a film about David Cameron that, that every Prime Minister I'd filmed with had got themselves a spin doctor, whereas David Cameron was effectively the spin doctor who became Prime Minister. It feels like there's a bit of a pattern emerging between the TV-friendly, media-friendly Prime Minister giving way to one who was slightly more awkward 
So you went from Macmillan to uh, Wilson was much more telegenic. Uh, and then you know, Callahan gave way to Heath, who, who really struggled with television. Thatcher giving way to Major, who was much more, you know, sort of harder work. Tony Blair to Gordon Brown. David Cameron then, of course, gives way to Theresa May, much more in the Brown, Heath, Macmillan mode of really struggling to connect with mass media. Mrs May had a very difficult time and she just did not like television. She did not like herself being exposed um, to the to the cameras. I, I remember what um, Sir Alan Duncan said when Mrs May uh, was once asked on television what was the naughtiest thing that she'd ever done and uh, she said that, that she once ran through a field of wheat. And Alan Duncan said to me, if only she had added naked. Then we could have... <laughs> we would have all... mental image. <laughs> we have all might... thought, thought more of her. <laughs> well, somebody probably has run through a field of wheat naked or done far worse than a field of wheat. It's Boris Johnson. Celebrated trip, which climaxed with the daring young mayor stuck on the zip wire. I want you to know, it's going well, it's very, very well organised. <laughs> Get me a ladder. <laughs> I want you to know that, that was far more painful and frightening than you might think. In what way? Because it was, to start with, it was jolly high up. And after you stuck up there for a while, yeah. stuff starts to, to chafe and so on and so forth. Well, but, around your groin. I don't want to go into these details, Michael. I mean, it was chafing. Chafing was involved, but... I thought you wrote in your book. Did I? Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm only quoting you, <laughs> Boris. This is what's so difficult. I quote you. I can never remember what I've written. Okay. You said it got very, very tight around your groin area. Did it? Right. Well, in fact, why I wrote in my book, it must be, it must be absolutely correct. I think one of the key questions to what Boris Johnson is, I mean, I remember when he was at, at Eton, he used to be in the school plays, and he would never learn his lines. And the, the school plays would, would become a, a sort of dialogue between him and, uh, and the prompter. And it was often hilarious. And I said to him, I told him this story, and I said, did you think in later life that you got by better by not knowing your lines than by knowing them? I mean, if what you're saying is that do I perhaps sometimes maybe give the impression that I don't know what's going on when I really do. Well, that may be true, and <laughs> it gives you a bit more time. No, I don't think that's the way I've operated in life, but he, it is the way he's operated in life. He's used that uh, as, a, as a cover, and it's very difficult to get beneath the surface of, of Boris Johnson. Just finally then, having been through all of them, what do you think you've learnt about what it takes to be a Prime Minister? And have you grown fonder of them, or does seeing them up close make you dislike them even more? Uh, having seen them, so many of them, up close, I, it's not that I've grown fonder of them, but I appreciate the, the complexity, the difficulty, the demands that there are on a, on a, a Prime Minister every minute of the day, and, and the judgments that, that you have to make, and the appalling hours that you have to work on, a whole range of things. It's a fantastically difficult job being Prime Minister. So I, I have sympathy for it, but what I don't have sympathy for is, is when they're not straight with the people. Lots of times, as a Prime Minister, you can't tell everything, but you mustn't, you mustn't uh, mislead or lie to the public.
Has anything you've seen in the course of making your videos changed how you vote personally? No one knows who I vote, Matt. And in fact, it's such a secret that when I go into the ballot box, I sort of don't even look to see where I'm putting my cross. <laughs> Michael Cockle, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us on Times Radio. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.